we're in Galatians chapter 5. And part of this uh, text tonight is, is a familiar passage. If you've been around Christians or you've been around Christian churches, you've probably heard about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. We're going to look at that tonight. We're actually going to look at the fruit of the Spirit um, more in detail next week and maybe the week after that as well. Tonight I want to help you understand the big picture of how this fits into Galatians and particularly understand the battle that is at work in the heart of all true Christians. And I want to do this for two reasons. Number one, if you're thinking about Christianity, trying to figure out what it is, considering it, I want you to understand what it's about. And if you are a Christian and you're wondering, am I crazy? I want you to understand what Christianity is about. I can't tell you how many times I meet with people who have just been taught some really crazy things about what they should expect the Christian life to feel like. They, they just seem somehow either implicitly they've picked up from maybe the kinds of songs that they sing in their church or the kinds of sermons that they hear or the Christian friends that they know who always seem to be cheerful and always have a smiley face. They just somehow have picked up the idea that being a Christian means everything's wonderful. And you finally found the answer to all of life's problems and you're happy all the time and you're never lonely and you never have sorrow and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians that perpetuate that myth. And it really is a myth. And, and it, it, it really affects two groups of people. It affects Christians who think they're crazy and wonder if they are Christians because the Christians they know all seem to have it all together all the time and they don't feel like that. And so they wonder, gosh, maybe I'm not a Christian. I really doubt some of this stuff sometimes and I really struggle with, with serious sin. I, you know, I want to kill people. You know, I want to sleep with people. And, I, you know, I don't ever find any Christians around me that seem to struggle like I do. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. Or on the other hand, if you're thinking about Christianity, this kind of myth being perpetuated really can mess you up. Because you can maybe either feel like, well, I, don't, I can't imagine ever being somebody who could, who could just be at peace with everything. And if that's what it means to be a Christian, well, I just can't, I can't imagine being who I am now and getting to be at that sort of rarefied level of transcendent existence. I just, I guess Christianity is not really for people like me. Maybe it's for these people that have this wonderful gift of faith and this temperament where they can just um, act like everything's fine. Or maybe they just have some kind of trust in God that I can't understand, right? You see how this really messes people up? Now, the, the reason that I say it messes them up is because it's just not true. It's not what Christianity teaches. It's certainly not what the normal experience of followers after God is like. And the easiest way to show that to you is just to say, read the book of Psalms. I mean, the book of Psalms is a a group of 150 songs that God has said, these are the songs that you can sing in worship. Now, they're not the only songs, but these have his stamp of approval on them. And you start reading them and you find that they say really the kinds of things that you never hear Christians say, which is really bizarre, isn't it? That if you start to read the Psalms and they say things like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, do you ever hear Christians say that? 
But the Psalms say that. And the Psalms tell us that we can come to God and say that. He's put his stamp of approval on those words. Now, I know that that's what Jesus said on the cross, and I know Psalm 22 that I just quoted is a psalm that foreshadows Jesus, but it's also a psalm that was written by David who felt like that and thought it was important in worship for God's people to be able to say that to him. So here's the thing. I think one of the great barriers to Christianity being taken seriously by the culture we live in and from Christianity having very much impact in the lives of Christians, I think one of the great barriers is that we're just not honest about the battle that real Christians face within. And because of that, people look at Christians somehow as as people that don't seem to be in touch with reality. And honestly, I think they're right a lot of the time. What I think that we need to be about whenever we come and we sit under the Word of God together is we want to get in touch with reality. Christians believe that the Bible connects us to reality. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians think that you read your Bible so that you can get removed from your reality, so that you can pretend that your reality doesn't exist anymore and you can just have a little sweet, quiet time with Jesus and then you've got to be back out into the world and you wonder which is real. Reality, the Bible is about reality. And the Bible that we're going to look at tonight, the pastor we're going to look at tonight, talks about a struggle that is so intense that you don't do what you want to do in the deepest part of your being. Can you identify with that? Have you ever, have you ever looked back at, at something and be like, I don't know why I did that. It's not what I really want. And, and especially after I did it, I, I realized that's not what I wanted. Maybe I thought I was going to get something different, but, but is this what Christians are like? Do Christians look back at their life and say, that's not what I wanted? I didn't want to do that, but I did it. And the answer is yeah. And Paul tells us why here in Galatians chapter 5. So if you're interested, and I hope you're interested, we're going to read this together, starting at verse 16 in Galatians chapter 5. Paul writes, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Or some older translations, like the King James, say flesh. It's actually a Greek word, sarx, that I'm going to talk about quite a lot tonight. Sinful nature kind of gets it. Flesh kind of gets it. Um, but it's, it's a complicated word to, to, um, to, to, de- to define, but we'll try tonight. Anyway, you will not gratify the desires of the sarx, of the sinful nature or the flesh. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. When I was in college, I remember I I got converted to Christianity around my ninth or tenth grade year and was involved in a Christian ministry for a while. When I went off to college, I ended up, you know, not being around really any Christians. I would go to church, but I didn't really grow very much. I started to really kind of stagnate, I guess, in my Christian life. Long about my senior year, I found some other Christians and got basically thrown into helping start a little Christian ministry at Berkeley College of Music where I was in college. And um, that thing kind of really took off. We had a local pastor who would come teach us Bible study, and then he got transferred to another state, and they all looked at me and said, Kevin, why don't you take over the Bible study? Because you're graduating, you'll have more time than us. Uh, okay. <laughs> I had no, I'd never taught a Bible study. I'd never, you know, done anything like that. But I remember feeling like if I'm going to teach this Bible study, I need to learn something, so I better go buy some books and start reading books and learning things. And I remember I stumbled upon a book it was red. I remember buying it basically because it was $2.50 and it was red. And it was cool. It was from the late 1800s. So it was red leather. And it was only $2.50. And it was about a Scottish pastor I'd never heard of named Robert Murray McShane. And I thought, Scotland, that's cool. I've never read about anybody from Scotland. That might be interesting. And I read that he died when he was 30. So I was like, well, huh, interesting. He's only lived to be 30 years old and they wrote a book about him. I should read this. And I remember that book had a profound impact on my life. Because as I began to read this book, I realized that there was a depth of spiritual experience that I was was quite unfamiliar with. There was a longing for holiness and a a deep repentance for deep-seated sins of the heart that I had never been around Christians that thought like that or talked like that. And and I remember, you know, there's, there's several quotes that have sort of shaped me. One of them from that, from that volume, from his diary. Basically, the whole book is just his diary, and then after he died, somebody published his diary. And um, it, it says this. Yeah, and some of you are like, oh my gosh, I hope that doesn't happen to me. Um, <laughs> it was a good friend who edited out things out of his diary. Um, but he said this. He said, the Christian is known as much by his warfare as he is by his peace. And I always thought, now that was not what I had heard. I'd never heard that before. I'd always thought that Christians were known by how much peace they had. The idea that a true Christian was known as much by their warfare as they were by their peace was really inconceivable to me. But it's exactly what Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 5. And do you understand that my shallow understanding of what the normal Christian life was like was really was really a huge barrier to me going forward in Christ. Because I I was always wondering whether or not I was a Christian at all. And I was obsessed over that. I I wasn't ever resting in Christ. I wasn't ever you know, able to to sing kind of the songs that we've been singing, um, to be able to honestly say not what my hands have done and and be able to say, I don't don't need my work 
to, to do the work because Jesus has done the work. I wasn't sure if Jesus had done the work because I found this turmoil in my heart. It made me not want to read the Bible because every time I read the Bible, I just felt more and more guilty because I didn't understand the grace of the gospel and I didn't understand what the Christian life was really about. I wish that I'd stumbled upon Galatians 5 earlier in the Christian life. What? Oh. Okay. So I should move along. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. If okay. Did anybody? Everybody turns off their cell phones. They don't receive text messages while I'm preaching, do they? <laughs> um, all right. Well, what? What? Do you, let, let me jump into this. There is a battle going on. Paul says it, and if you're a Christian, you know it. And I hope that if you're exploring Christianity, that you will. Be, at least learn about Christianity from Christians who are honest enough to admit this. And if you are a Christian, I pray that you'll be honest enough to admit this to your friends. We somehow have gotten this idea that to be a good witness for Jesus means to pretend that everything is wonderful. And oh, I long for the day when we'd be set free from that foolishness. It's not. It's not what it's about. But you know, It's this same passage, this idea of the fruit of the Spirit, that in a lot of ways messed me up because I didn't understand it. I remember actually my senior year in high school, before going to college, my senior year in high school, a good friend of mine was murdered. It was a really tragic thing, and I won't get into all the details of that. But I remember that I didn't think that Christians should cry. Because after all, if I knew Jesus, then there wasn't anything to be sad about, right? And so I remember being amazed that I didn't cry, in all of that trauma that went, went down with that situation. And I remember really feeling very proud of myself when I heard about the fruit of the Spirit and I heard that little phrase, self-control. And I remember thinking, oh, I must be a mature Christian because I have an amazing amount of self-control. Now, I probably wouldn't have said it exactly like that, but pretty close. I thought I had, uh, you know, I, I, I basically would comfort myself this way. I know I don't ever read the Bible. I know I don't ever pray. I know I I don't ever tell people about Jesus and all the things that I think Christians are supposed to do, but I sure have a lot of self-control. So I must be a Christian because I don't feel anything. Well, is that what the fruit of the Spirit is all about? I hope you're going to come to understand tonight that this is not what Paul is talking about. Um, As we get into this, there's a contrast here, right? Between the desires of the sinful nature, and the desires of the Spirit. That's an interesting thing here. Paul talks about this battle, and it's a battle of desires. It's an internal battle between the sinful nature and the Spirit. Well, what is the sinful nature? Now, like I said, the older King James translation translates this Greek word sarks. They translate it flesh. And they translate the word desires as lusts. So you get this phrase, lusts of the flesh. I know you can just hear some preachers going to town on that, about the lusts of the flesh. But it's actually ended up helping a lot of Christians feel like they're doing pretty good when they actually are, are really deeply manifesting the marks of the sinful nature. Because Christians, by that, that translation, have ended up thinking that what Paul is talking about here is sexual lust. And therefore... A lot of times Christians are oblivious to some of the other things that are in this list. Have you ever been around Christians? Have you grown up in a Christian church? There may not have been witchcraft going on, but I suspect there were factions and dissensions and envy and jealousy. But you see, 
Christians have a, have a way of sort of picking and choosing which things they think are really the marks of the flesh. In, in my high school, it was, you know, if you go to drinking parties, then you were definitely a heathen or a backslidden Christian. Never mind the fact that me and my friends were never invited to drinking parties. You know, that's why it was easy for us to make that the mark of spirituality, right? And so it is for other people. Maybe it's the fact that you're very disciplined. And yet, of course, you're disciplined. By temperament, you're disciplined. You don't even have to try to be disciplined. But you think that the mark of godliness is discipline, and you obviously have it. See, if we don't understand what Paul is saying here about the marks of the flesh and about the fruit of the Spirit, we'll be very confused about what spirituality is and what it looks like. And I would contend that there is a whole lot of confusion among Christians about what true spirituality is. So how do we, how do we understand this, this word sarks? The best way to understand it is this. In verse 16 and in verse 24, the word that the NIV translates desires, or the old King James translates lusts, is really a word epithumia, which isn't just the word for desires, it's a word that means inordinate desires without having the connotation of them being desires for bad things. What's, what makes them bad is the fact that they're inordinate desires. But they're desires actually for good things. Now, this, the Bible actually has talked about this idea before the book of Galatians. In the Old Testament, this idea is called idolatry. That there are things that we put our hope and trust in, good things, good things like friendships, like sex, like marriage, like work, like food, good things. And yet we put our hope in them. We say to them, save us, give me the peace and security that I think I have to have. And when we do that, What we are doing is we are not trusting in Jesus and in Christ for salvation. We are instead trusting in the works of our own hands, as we sung in that hymn. Now, that's the conflict that Paul's talking about here. And he says that's always going on, that every one of us comes into the world with a commitment to take care of ourselves and to save ourselves. And unless God comes in and breaks into your life, and saves you, this is what Christians mean by this idea of conversion, and turns your life around, you are committed to taking care of yourself. Now, it doesn't matter if you're convinced that you need to quit taking care of yourself, unless you understand that Christ has done enough to take care of you, you can't give up taking care of yourself. You can't just sort of leap into the dark And so the the issue here that Paul is talking about is you need to understand what Jesus has done. He talks here down in verse 24 about those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sin nature. What does it mean to belong to Christ Jesus? It means that he has lived and died in your place and claimed you as his own possession. And there's a security there that is the only thing that begins to help you let go of the other things that you would want to trust in. Why do we have these inordinate desires? Why is it that we don't just want people to like us? We have to have people like us. Why do these desires become inordinate desires? The reason is because, as Paul says here, they're connected to gratifying the desires of the sinful nature. What's the sinful nature? The sinful nature, he says down here in um, 
in verse 16 and verse 17 is contrary to the Spirit. But look down here in verse 18 where he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. And I mentioned this last week. There's a contrast between being gratifying the sinful natures and being under law. In the book of Galatians, under law means that you're trying to get God to like you by what you do. And the book of Galatians says that this is a slavery like you've never known. That once you start down the path of having to trust in what you can do for God to like you, you can never really give up. You can never let go of that. Because you're always wondering, have I disappointed God now? You're always wondering when you don't get something that you were hoping to get, is it because I disappointed God? You're always wondering when somebody, you know, some blessing passes you by, is it because I disappointed God and I didn't do enough? I better do, make doubly sure that I do all the right things the next time. You see, if you don't have settled this issue of my standing with God is based on what Jesus did, it, it just brings such slavery and, and, and difficulties into your life, okay? And what, and what Paul's saying here is that this, this way of trying to get God to like you by what you do, this being under law, produces all kinds of crazy stuff. Now, here's what's interesting. These, this list of things here in verse 19, 20, and 21, I don't know if very many of us would connect these things with trying to be our own savior. But that's exactly what Paul is saying here. When he says that these are the acts of the sinful nature, understand the sinful nature is that part of you that is opposed to grace. It's that part of you that wants to earn God's favor. And you may say, why would I want to earn God's favor? The reason is because it feels, it feels more controllable. It feels like it's one thing to, to, to have to completely trust in what Jesus did. That's kind of a scary proposition. It seems like, wouldn't it be better to sort of cover my bets and give lip service to the idea of trusting Jesus, but then do all the right things too? And so that's what we do. We, we, we don't really trust boldly in Jesus. We, we end up trusting ultimately in what we're doing. That's called being under law. And it produces all kinds of, of things like this. It produces it, it, the flesh, that is the flesh, produces all these things. You might say, well, how does this, how does this work? How does, it, how does it produce sexual immorality? How does this refusal to have Jesus and his salvation and to really take that on and really accept that, how does that lead to sexual immorality? And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times people come to Belmont from church backgrounds. A lot of the people that come to Belmont have grown up in church, but a lot of people that come here are really done with that, right? And it's interesting, sometimes I'll get a call from a parent. Um, I haven't had one in a couple of years, but occasionally I'll get a call from a parent who's very concerned because their good Christian son or daughter who was just such a wonderful Christian kid, has now come to Belmont, and they're living like a hellion. And they're like, you know, what's going on? And often, you know, like what the parent thinks or what their youth pastor thinks needs to happen is I need to get with that student and I need to, you know, come on, what are you doing here? You know, read them the riot act and, and give them the law and tell them all the things they need to be doing. And read a list like this to them and say, you better quit doing all this stuff. Well, is that what you really need to do? Is that, that's not like a, is it? Oh, really? Should we stop then? 
Call your dad. He's watching the, he's watching the news, right? They, you know, here's what happens. There's two ways. Here's the interesting. There's two ways of trying to be your own savior. The one way is, is, pretty, is pretty obvious, and it's the religious way. The religious way of, of basically gratifying the flesh is to basically try to do all the right things, keep the rules. And these people almost always are manifest, you can tell them, by some of the marks that Paul lists here. Things like fits of rage, jealousy, selfish ambition, factions, envy. These are the kinds of things that are manifested by people who are really not trusting in Jesus, and therefore they're completely insecure. They, 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 they're Christians, but they're really not trusting in Jesus very well at all, and therefore they're really insecure. They're always feeling like they're not doing enough. They feel pretty miserable. They feel pretty afraid of what God really thinks about them. And one of the best ways that they can deal with that is to try to, is to, try to basically you know, cut down other people, deflect the attention from them. They basically are miserable, selfish self-centered, self-obsessed people. And it manifests itself in things like jealousy and fits of rage. And you've been around. Religious people can be brutal. And they often do it with this sort of sheen of niceness. They pretend that everybody's nice. We're all nice here, but they're going to stab you in the back because they're not trusting in Jesus Therefore, they've got to trust in themselves, and yet their own righteousness is full of holes. You remember the story of the Garden of Eden, where after Adam and Eve sin against God, and they sort of try to hide behind fig leaves? You know why that's such a a humorous picture? Fig leaves are huge. It's the largest, largest leaf of any plant known in that area, and yet they're full of holes. It's, it's It's this picture of, you know, trying to hide behind something that's full of holes. Five more minutes and I need to quit? Well, we can just quit now. Well, people need to get home. All right. Like people are really going to be able to pay, pay attention now. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me jump to the end then. What if, what if, forget it. All right. That, that's the point about, you know, the sinful nature. There's, there's two ways of being your own salvation. One is to try to keep the rules. The other is basically say to God, screw you. I don't need you to tell me how to live. I'm going to make up my own rules. I'm going to live for whatever gives me pleasure. And you see that list in here as well. But what you notice here is that Paul is saying that both of these flow out of the sinful nature. In other words, the religious people, the religious people are not any different at their heart from the irreligious people that they always look down their nose at. And I think the irreligious people know that because they generally think these Christians are so judgmental and yet there's a lot of stuff wrong with their life. And what's wrong with their life is at heart the same thing that's wrong with the irreligious people's life. Both of them are refusing to accept salvation by grace. So that's the, the, the sort of the, the acts of the sinful nature. And they're obvious. And they're obvious. Well, how about the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit. Now, here's the interesting thing. We're going to talk about this more, so I won't talk about it much now. But I want you to notice this one point. It says fruit of the Spirit, not fruits. What I had done in my naivete, thinking that I was this wonderfully mature Christian because I had the fruit of self-control, I was reading this like it said fruits. 
the fruits of the Spirit are all these different fruits. And isn't it wonderful if you have one or two of them? But it doesn't say that. It says fruit. And the point is, if you don't have all of the fruit, you don't have any of the fruit. You have what is masquerading as fruit, but it's not real fruit. If I really had the fruit of self-control, I would have also had the fruit of joy. I didn't have any joy, which shows that my self-control was not fruit of the Spirit. The fruit here that Paul's describing is a multifaceted way to basically say this is Christian character. This is what God made human beings to live like. Isn't this the kind of people you want to have? Isn't this the kind of community you want to have, people like this? This is what we were made for. But you can't look at this and just sort of pick and say, well, I like this one and this one and this one because I don't have to work at these. This is my temperament. Or maybe you're somebody who says, well, I have the fruit of joy. And things don't ever bother me. I just have joy. I must be wonderfully blessed with the fruit of joy. But you don't have, you don't have any self-control. You don't have any patience. You don't have any soberness. Right? Maybe you think you have the fruit of self-control like me, but you don't have any joy. You don't have any peace. Your heart is always sort of telling you things aren't really right, but you're keeping it down, keeping it down. Right? Maybe you're somebody who say, well, I have, the, I have the fruit of the spirit of gentleness and everybody just walks all over you because you don't, have, you don't have any faithfulness actually to God's word, which says that faithful are the wounds of a friend. You don't know how to do that because what you think is your fruit of the spirit of gentleness is really just cowardice. So it's a very important thing that we look at this fruit and not only that, we seek to understand how do we develop it. And that's where we're going to go in the, in the next couple of weeks. We're going to break down this because for each one of the fruits that's listed here, there is a satanic counterfeit and then there is a weed. And, and, I, and I, want to, I want to help you to see this. In other words, I'll, I'll give you just one. Love. What's the counterfeit of love? What do you think? Tolerance. Tolerance. I remember one time um, a friend of mine um, was cutting my hair, hairdresser. He was gay. Uh, you know, I almost hate to say that because it sort of makes it sort of this stereotypical story, but it, it relates because we were talking about Christianity. And he's like, yeah, I went to that church once and he's talking about a particular church and we were talking about it. And, you know, he, he's just talking about this. He goes, why, why do those people hate us so much? And I was like, you know, what do you mean? He goes, I, why don't they just tolerate us? And I was like, is that really all you can hope for from Christians? How sad. If, all, if the best you think you could ever hope for from Christians was to be tolerated. Christians should be deeply ashamed of that, right? But yet we live in a world that says tolerance is good enough or tries to say tolerance is good enough. I don't know if you've ever felt real warm and fuzzy if somebody says, hey, boy, I really tolerate you, <laughs> right? But there's so many people in our society that's the best they can hope for, right? Because Christians are content with this counterfeit fruit. God is committed to developing the real fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to talk about that. And one of the ways that it it comes is by seeing the counterfeits and repenting, because the counterfeits are always a way for you to find out the ways that you're refusing to submit to grace and salvation by grace. So it's helpful to see them and then helpful to repent and trust again in the righteousness of Christ that will actually produce this kind of fruit. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word.
We do thank you for um, your people. We do pray, Lord, that you would keep everybody safe tonight as we head back to wherever it is that we need to go. Um, Thank you for this meeting time. Thank you for your word. Pray that you would continue to bless uh, the preaching and the hearing of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.